Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. If these resources have been a blessing to you, we would be honored if you would consider making a donation to our church building fund. To learn more about this unique challenge ahead of us and to partner with us for a gospel legacy in Missoula, please visit achurchbuilding.com. That's achurchbuilding.com. Let's uh, pray and we'll dive into God's word for us today. Uh, Lord Jesus, we sit here, um, $600,000 and uh, a warehouse later, always amazed at your grace. And yet, someone could write a check for us for the entire remainder of the remodel and renovations, and it would, it would amount to nothing compared to the generosity you have given us in Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, as we as a church, as a collective body, are um, amazed, comforted, made glad at the grace we share with each other, um, I pray that that emotion is made all the more real through the grace that is given to us in Jesus Christ. And as Peter addresses today in his letter, Lord, may that push us to act, to think, and to live in unique ways in light of the way in which we've been loved by Jesus. Lord, you are king of our hearts. So we ask for conversion today. We ask for repentance, and we ask for worship, and we know you are a God who delights to answer those prayers. So we pray this in your name, amen. As was mentioned in red, we're going to be in 1 Peter today, 1 Peter chapter 4. If you have a Bible, you could turn there. It'll be on the screens as well. Um, If you knew you only had a set amount of time left to live, how would you spend it? This is a question, a brain teaser that's often played out in numerous ways in TV or books or movies, right? You've all seen perhaps uh, a television show or a movie where the company is going to close and it's just, they're waiting for their imminent demise and it shows the employees playing games, slacking off, running amok because it seems there's nothing left to live for. The company's going down. What are they going to do? Or we could tune in to a show called Doomsday Preppers, all otherwise known as the Bitterroot Valley. And we could see people who, in light of the imminent end, begin to stock up, store, and by the power of their might, assure their survival for the future. Then there's movies like The Bucket List, which follow two guys trying to live everything they've ever wanted to do, to squeeze every drop of adventure out of this life before it ends. And today's text begins with Peter saying, the end of all things is at hand. And I imagine those eight words strike in you many different responses. If you're not a believer and you're watching today or you came to church today, this is probably reinforcing some doomsday stereotype you have of religious people. This is all we talk about, is this mysterious end times. Or maybe you're a Christian and you recognize that this book was written 2,000 years ago and you think, Why should we listen to Peter anymore today, 2,000 years after he said this? Or it can lead us to anxiety, and we begin to read our newspaper with our Bible in hand, trying to trace and connect present events to what's going on in here, like when God wrote this book, 21st century America was exactly what he meant to write for. That is the center of all history. Or what we can do is begin to look at it another way. The German pastor Martin Luther was once asked, Uh, if you knew today was your last day, how would you live? He said in a very German way, he would plant a tree and pay his taxes. And that is what he would do. And he said this 
Because he realized that as a Christian, he already lived every day in light of the end. Christians live life under the banner of eternity, meaning that our proximity to it, whether it is near, whether it is far, does not alleviate the inevitable nature of it. We know the end will come. This might be our own physical death. It might be the coming of Jesus Christ, the second coming. We know each and every person in this room will encounter that end in their life in one way, whether it be through your death or whether it be through the coming of Jesus Christ. And in light of these two realities, one which everyone understands, that being physical death, and one that Christians understand or any other religion understands of some sort of spiritual nature, our culture and our hearts try to respond to that in different ways. There is what's called the pull of distraction. This is where our modern culture typically lives. We don't want to think about our death. We don't want to really work into our understanding the reality that we die. Why is that? Because if humanism is our only hope, we don't have anything to help us grapple with those answers. And so instead of consciously thinking out, can we discern meaning, is there purpose in life, we distract ourselves with all sorts of gizmos and gadgets and adventures that seek to remind us and affirm us that everything's okay. Look at all the fun you're having here. Why think of deep things? That's why we could sit and get Netflix shamed like four times in a day. Are you still watching? It's like, yes, robot, I am. Deal with it. It captivates our minds. It consumes us. So we don't have to think about matters of life or death. Or there's the other poll, and these are generally the more realistic, but not the same people you want to invite over for dinner. And these are those who live not in distraction, but in despair. They realize from an evolutionary and scientific perspective, all we are are random specks of space dust that happen to combine and collide on just the right rock in the right solar system so that we can have life. And because of this random chance, there's no way we could pull any sort of meaning from this world. Happiness, morality, purpose, satisfaction. These are just some sort of evolutionary traits that we try to gather together to make sense of what can't be made sense of. All we know is what is, and when you die, you die. These people make less coffee mugs than the other group. (laughs) And yet, Peter is holding out here for the church neither distraction, trying to forget, nor despair, bemoaning what is inevitable, but instead he presents a life lived for the glory of King Jesus. A life lived in light of his eternal and assured coming kingdom. In light of everything going on in our world, in light of the myriad of options you can choose to live out of, Peter holds up the reality of glory. And Peter's main point today is this, is that a clear picture of Christian living stems from a clear picture of Christian hope. If we want to live rightly as Christians in all the ways that we could respond to life, we need to see clearly the Christian hope. And he's going to walk us through this in three primary ways. First, he's going to be after the conduct of our minds, how we think, what we believe. Then he's going to be after the conduct of our hands, how does that shape the way we interact with our world. And then lastly, he's going to hold up for us the culmination of glory. So let me read for us once more the text we're going to be in. 1 Peter 4, verses 7 through 11. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, 
since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God might be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So if you've been with us or if you've read First Peter before, we have just come out of uh, roughly a chapter of Peter's teaching on suffering as a Christian, suffering because of your conversion to Jesus. Right after this, he's going to get back at it, suffering as a Christian. But here in this text, there's this pause, almost like this breath of fresh air that fills the room, that gives us a way to act because of our hope. In other words, Peter is saying that the hope of Christianity is so big that nothing in this world can ever distract Christians from living in light of it. Not even suffering, not political uproar, not tensions, none of this. In the midst of what seems to be the hardest, Christians can still live Christianly. They can still act Christianly. Our hope is untouched by what plagues the world, even when it hurts us in the flesh. And I heard it said once that maturity is simply having extended time horizons. What do I mean by that? I mean my six-month-old daughter, who's right back there, looking adorable. There will come a moment in my sermon where she decides she wants to eat, and there's no reasoning with her. She will not understand, please wait until dad is done preaching, and then you can eat. When she feels hungry, she's going to scream until she's fed. My two-year-old is over here with my parents. She might be, she's eating right now. (laughs) You might be able to convince her that perhaps she could wait, apparently not, until after the sermon, and she might be able to understand that. My five and seven-year-old back with my wife, we could maybe even convince them that they could hold off eating until that next thing comes around called a meal, which is when you're supposed to eat. And it's reasonable that the more mature they get, I ought to be able to say, you can wait until this, and they could not respond like a six-month-old child. Maturity expands our horizons so that we can make decisions weighted over time. And this is what Peter's after. He expects believers to expand the horizons of their time into eternity. And in light of what Jesus has done, and in light of what lies ahead, He calls us sometimes to wait and act in light of that. He calls us to act in light of our understanding of the scope of life. And this is his first point today. This is where he begins to speak to the conduct of our minds. Because the end is near, he calls Christians to be self-controlled and sober-minded. Those two words in the Greek are imperatives, they're commands, they're also synonyms, they're saying the same thing. And before we dive into these commands... We must first understand what he means when he says the end of all things is at hand, which is the language he uses. I mentioned he wrote this 2,000 years ago, probably around 60 AD, which might lead us to question whether Peter knows what the phrase at hand means. Whose hand is the end at? Certainly not our hands. Our hands are limited. We get flustered when the remote is not at hand. We certainly I take no comfort that the end is at our hand. But this end, the end which Peter is speaking of, is based on God's hand. 
God's sovereign, eternal, ruling hand. Meaning that the next event in God's program of redemption is at hand. This book is not a disconnected book of propositional truths about who God is. It is a story of how God saves his people that stretches from the beginning of human history to the end of human history. And the next event is at hand. Growing up, uh, my grandparents owned a cabin in north of Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, and so we drive from Missoula to Coeur d'Alene a lot. And I remember distinctly getting to Kellogg, Idaho every time. And that's when I began to get excited because I knew after Kellogg, what was next was the lake. The lake comes next. And so it is with this church age that we're in as Christians. Christ has come, the Messiah has come, He has lived his perfect life. He has died his sacrificial death. He has been raised in glory. He has ascended to the right hand of God the Father. He has breathed the Spirit out upon the church. The next thing is Jesus' second coming. That's what's next. It is in God's hand, waiting for God's desire in which he would execute the next plan. Jesus spoke of it this way in Matthew 24, 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony. That's the church age. The gospel's going forth. We're funding missions locally and abroad to all the nations. And then the end will come. Jesus speaks of it this way to the church in Revelation. Revelation chapter three, he says this to the church in Philadelphia. He says, I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. One thing is clear. Jesus himself and the New Testament authors see this next event, Jesus' second coming, as imminent, as something which is happening soon. And yet, we never see Jesus nor his apostles or, or New Testament writers ever trying to set a date for these events. Why? Because the goal of Jesus and his apostles when they write of the end was not to set a date, but to set our lives. It was not to set a day on a calendar, but to set our hearts for action, for living in right response to what we know will come. The day doesn't matter. What matters is your action prior to that day. You see, you might encounter Christians who find it foolish, or you might encounter non-Christians, excuse me, who think it foolish, that we as Christians say that this Bible is God's word and it is our supreme authority in matters of faith and conduct, and yet it was written thousands and thousands of years ago in different languages and in different contexts. And they say, that's silly. Certainly we don't need something that old, right? That's, C.S. Lewis calls it chronological snobbery, thinking your time has all the answers. But what I love and what we know in reading the Bible, is that we may have invented smartphones and Airbnb, but we have not outgrown the problem of the human heart. The problem of the hearts we see in Scripture are the problems of the heart we see today, and nothing has fixed it. Not Netflix, not Disney+, Plus, not modern democracy, not idealistic communism, nothing has fixed the problem of our hearts. And here we see this universal problem, this problem of procrastination, right? If God would just give us a date, wouldn't our life be easier? If God would just say on July 25th, 2037, I'm coming back, we would love that 
because that would allow us to do things that we've done in school for centuries, which is do absolutely nothing until the night before the exam. We live for our own glory, we do what we want to do, and then we know we have a set period of time where in which we must get our lives back in order so that we can pass the final exam. But remember what Peter said right before this in verses 4 through 6. This is what we looked at last week. With respect to this, they, that is our non-believing friends, are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. That is the maligning you for your Christian conduct. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. That is Jesus Christ. For this is why the gospel is preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. When this day comes, we stand before a judge. The end is a time where God judges the actions of his followers and the actions of all humanity. And because we do not know when that day is, we don't get the choice to defer our repentance and our obedience to that day. What we get to control is right now. One of my favorite um, pastors was a pastor named J.C. Ryle who lived in uh, the late 19th century, and he wrote a book to young men. He always talks about young men living in a sense of hurriedness, also living in a sense of procrastination. He says this, tomorrow is the devil's day, but today is God's. Satan does not care how spiritual your intentions are, or how holy your resolutions, if only they're determined to be done tomorrow. Young men, your time is short. Your days are but a brief shadow, a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes, a story that is soon told. Brothers and sisters, to be sober-minded about eternity is to realize that today matters in light of eternity. Your sin which separates you from God, is not something that will be covered up no matter how distracted you might get. We might boast in ourselves and say, I'm still here today. Why not repent tomorrow? But look at what God's grace is. Do not misunderstand what we see in Romans chapter two, where Paul says this. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? God has been kind. He has been forbearant. He has been patient to you. If you are a sinner, this God has done all those things for you. But why? knowing that God's kindness, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Why has God delayed judgment? So that you might repent. So you might wake up from your drunken stupor of silliness and realize that this God has come to save you through Jesus Christ. Because the end is at hand, our lives learn to live life in light of that final judgment. But for the Christian, this ought not lead to despair. Because we know that we stand before this great holy God, this God who's calling us to repentance, what will be judged is not the sum of our actions to please God, but the sum of Christ's actions to please God in our stead. To be a Christian is not to say that actions don't matter. <laughs> to be a Christian is to say that Jesus' actions do. That you're saved by grace in his performance. 
And we stand before God and we know that we stand accepted because Jesus was rejected. We stand accepted because Jesus lived perfectly in our place. And even though our actions, this is what Peter is saying, and we can't miss this, even though our actions do not save us, our ability to faithfully follow Jesus shows us that our faith is truly in Jesus. Our actions follow our faithful response to repent and believe in Jesus. Because in believing in Jesus, we're believing that Jesus solved all of our problems. And if we're, if we're willing to trust him with the sum of our life, wouldn't we be willing to trust him with the smaller details of our life? So therefore, a lack of obeying Jesus is a lack of trust in Jesus, and we ought to wake up to that. But why would we not follow Jesus? This is what Peter's assuming here. Because remember this hope he opens his book with in verses, uh, chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. We've read this many times, but this is really the heart of Peter's message. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, you rejoice, though now, for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, even though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That is speaking of the second coming. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Here's the church age. We don't see him, but we love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. That hope, that prize, that joy, that wonderful outcome is at hand, dear Christian. It is not far from us. For Christ has united it to us in faith. When we get access to that, when our end comes, we don't know. But we do know is that faith brings those promises near and dear to our hearts. So don't lose sight of it. Don't forget what is ultimately held out for you. Everything that distraction promises, Christ provides. Everything that despair rightly fears, Christ took from you on the cross. And so we neither have to despair the inevitable destruction for Christ was destroyed in our place, nor do we distract ourselves trying to find joy because we've been given joy that never fades and endures eternally. So we now get to live in the shadow of that one concrete event and our challenge as sober-minded Christians is to not keep adjusting our sight to the ever-moving goalposts of culture because we know what Christ has provided in full. And look at the end of verse seven where he says this, why ought we to live this way? For the sake of your prayers. Why does he say this? I asked myself that question and then I realized in reality it's pretty obvious, isn't it? If we lack the self-control and the sobriety to think clearly on the eternal issues in life, why would we talk to God? We use everywhere else in life, don't we? If we think that the sum of our life, what brings us glory in the end, is worldly fame, wouldn't we then go out of our way to chit-chat and maybe brown nose a little with our boss to show off our expenses? Or do you not show off expenses? 
Maybe don't hire me as a businessman. <laughs> but trust me with your money for a building fund. <laughs> if you think that your glory in life is sex or romance, wouldn't it be fitting to spend your time flirting or chatting with potential partners? If then we live for the reward of God, wouldn't it be natural that we spend our time talking with him? You see, twice now in this book, Peter has used prayer to show that a hindered heart in prayer is a litmus test for a hindered heart elsewhere. You see, if we find ourselves in a lack of general prayerlessness, it's a litmus test that God might be showing you that your hope is actually misplaced. In my life as a Christian, in my life in ministry, when you sit down with a group of people and you say, what's one thing you want to get better at? Eight times out of ten, they say prayer. If we look at what Peter is saying about our prayer lives, that prayerlessness exposes a hopelessness that we ought to move towards. If we really see the importance God has given us of loving him and loving others and the eternal weight of glory, prayer is the breath of a Christian. And so we assess that in our own hearts and we see where we fail because we are distracted, because we despair and turn to worldly things, because we get distracted and want the comfort of what is silly and simple, we begin to move towards this God in prayer. In light of a final day which we do not know, we prayerfully become reliant upon the God we do know. That's how we prepare our minds for life in this world. That's the conduct of the Christian mind. Now, when my wife was preparing to go to Africa on a mission trip, she encountered someone who gave her this wonderful bit of advice. He said, don't have your head so far in the clouds that you can't see where you're walking. And his point was, don't become so concerned about spiritual things that you miss the practical things. And Peter says the exact opposite of that. He says that is the most unhelpful advice you'll ever get. Because if we're truly living for God, God created humans. He's not us, leading us away from humanity, but towards humanity. Peter makes the opposite point. He says it is precisely a preoccupation with the Christian hope that pushes us to live in practical, tangible ways, that refuses to let us neglect or ignore or be distracted from what is actually given to us in this world. And this is his second point today, the conduct of our hands. We read this in verses 9 through 10. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling, as each has received a gift, or excuse me, verse 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another, as good stewards of God's varied grace. One thing we can do, you see this in shows like The Bucket List, is if we were to know that an end is coming, our natural tendency is to live for ourselves, to turn inward. But the gospel turns us outward. Peter shows us in two primary ways, love and hospitality. And so when it comes to the conduct of our hand, he's showing us two things. First, he says, keep loving one another. Keep loving one another. Because the end is at hand, don't stop. Keep doing it. 
And here he's not specifically talking about love for God. He's not specifically talking about love for people in general. He affirms both of those things, but in context, he's talking here about you loving your brothers and sisters in Christ. For Peter, it is specifically churches who live in tumultuous times who know that love for one another is essential to the endurance of the church. Remember the primacy Peter gave love? Look at the strong language he uses in chapter 1, verse 22. Having purified your souls by obedience to the truth, so that's, he's speaking of the gospel there, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Why are you saved? You're saved, Peter says here, for a primary, uh, one primary reason of loving others. Eagerly, zealously, from a pure heart. This assumes that if we're sober-minded about the eternal nature of the Christian life, this would be what we want to do above all else, is what he says. Why? Because to be a Christian is to realize above all else that you are loved by Jesus. What motivated Jesus to leave heavenly perfection, to take on flesh, to grow up in this world, to accumulate a a ragtag bag of followers who even at their best were completely unaware of what Jesus was doing and couldn't follow his teaching to go on to then be mocked, scorned, murdered, and on top of all of that, bear the weight of all of the sin of those who would believe in him. Why would he do that? Love. Look how Paul puts this. In 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 16 through 17. And I want you to notice in this passage how love is connected to our actions. Now may the Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Jesus loves sinners. And out of that loving, salvific affection, which is accessed not simply by being alive, but is accessed by being converted and repenting and believing in Jesus, we are then to work out of that. It shapes our work and our words. And this is one thing that God has really been working into my heart lately. When we talk about being a Christian, you are completely, finally, and fully converted by grace through faith. That is the mechanical thing which happened to you. But to be a Christian first and foremost is simply to be loved by Jesus. To be a Christian is to have experienced the love of this king. The generous, selfless, giving eager love of the Lord. And because this Jesus loved us when we were his enemies, we can keep loving our brothers and sisters in faith, even when, though perhaps not our enemies, certainly act in boneheaded ways. This is what I love about Peter. Peter If you read Paul's writing about Peter and what we see about Peter between him writing this book at the end of his life and his ministry in the Gospels, he kind of fumbles and bumbles his way through life. Peter knows that the church is not a life of roses. In fact, that's what Peter assumes here, isn't it? 
Why should the church pursue loving each other? Because it covers a multitude of sins. Because you're going to encounter sin in the lives of those who are around you in the church. On, the, on June 23rd, we're going to go have an open house in the new warehouse. And when you walk into it, you'll notice it feels very much like a warehouse. Even more so than our current warehouse feels like a warehouse. But you want to know the, the primary difference between a building which feels cold and warehousey and a building like this which feels a little bit more hospitable? Paint. When you go into that building, you are going to notice the walls and the floor are gross, but I can assure you when we moved into this building, I was here, some of you were, they were just as gross. What's the difference? Like literally, what is the difference when you go there to this? paint. Love is the paint that covers the Christian church. We are going to run into the gross, nasty stains of those who are in our life, and Peter here says that you must learn to paint over those where applicable. You are going to have times where your own sensibilities are going to be offended, and you think at that point you need to get a jackhammer, you need to cut up some concrete, you need to backfill, and Peter's saying, just love it. Just paint over it. It'll be fine. I promise you don't need to do that right now. Love allows us to cover things in a way which beautifies. Now, I want to be careful here because Peter's not saying that if one of the pillars in the center of the church is crumbling, you should just slap some paint on it. He's not saying we have drip marks on our current pavement. He's not saying that you shouldn't maybe paint over the stain of the drips, um, but he's saying you should probably also fix the drip in the roof. There comes a time in the lives of our brothers and sisters where we should move towards sin in constructive ways. But when it comes to what Peter is, I believe, talking about here, like interpersonal offenses, where we feel harmed, where we feel the urge to vindicate ourselves against those who might have sinned against us, even unintentionally, he says, love them. Cover their sin with love. Look at how Solomon puts this in Proverbs 10:12. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. Also Proverbs 19, 11, Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is in his glory to overlook an offense. If we as a church are unwilling to love broken sinners saved by grace like ourselves, then we will nitpick and offend each other right out of the church. If we are unable to overlook misspoken words, untimely Facebook posts, awkward conversations, and slight offenses, we will find ourselves exhausted with the task and weary of the bride, which only Jesus is able to fully cleanse. Peter is assuming that in the spirit of love, there are smaller sins and offenses which we can overlook in our brothers and sisters. I'm talking about... The Bible, the New Testament authors give way of where we move towards big sins. Church discipline, those things matter. He's not talking about those issues right here. He's talking about slighter things. And there's a big difference that we need to understand between overlooking a sin for the sake of others and overlooking a sin for the sake of selves. We can overlook sin because we love ourselves too much to put ourselves in an awkward situation of confronting a sin that ought to be confronted. I don't want to go talk to my community group member about this because it could be awkward and I don't know what to do. That's not loving them. 
that's loving you, that's seeking to preserve your own sense of peace to the detriment of your brother and sister, brother or sister in Christ. We also could overlook a sin because we want to feel morally superior, like we've taken the high road when it comes to those who sin against us. And we never express that sin to them until we've amassed enough of them to do damage. Or we never express that sin to them, but we take out our logbook of Christian conduct and we begin to keep score. That's not loving your brother. That's leveraging your own self-esteem. That's loving your own sense of assurance and your own righteousness, which is not what we need to save us. But because Jesus loved us fully and effectively while we were works in progress, we can love those around us who are also saved works in progress. So Peter isn't just saying here that love is defined by what we don't do. We, we don't selfishly and vindictively move towards sin in overly aggressive ways, but we love each other, realizing that we can handle the interpersonal offenses that come when we live life together, specifically when the church is frustrated or anxious because of persecution, which is what's beginning to happen in First Peter's time. It's what's beginning to happen in our church today, and it makes sense that when we get a little hot under the collar and we get anxious, we don't know what to do, and we might offend somebody. But Jesus' love allows us to overlook that and care for people. And more than that, he then tells us what we are to do. We're to participate in hospitality. This is 1 Peter verses 9 through 11. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God might be glorified through Jesus Christ. So not only are we to keep loving each other, but secondly, we are to show hospitality to one another. Specifically, he says, without grumbling. You see, in the early church, there were no church buildings. Sometimes churches, we read, are able to meet in porticos or kind of outside gathering places. But more times than not, local churches met in the houses of local families. On top of that, at this point, most churches didn't have local pastors. But this is, was a goal that Paul set when he appointed Titus and he t- said to go appoint elders to get these churches, their local pastors, because up until that happens, there would be this group of traveling pastors or evangelists who would rotate around the churches and, and kind of cyclically come through and it was up to the churches to care for and to provide for those men who would come and care for the churches. In other words, hospitality was the essence of the church. If people were unable to open up their homes, the church wouldn't gather. If people were unable to support traveling preachers or their own pastors, if they were lucky enough to have a man there who could do that, there would be no public teaching in the church. And here we see one of the best pictures of a theology of church, which I love how Peter puts it. You see, for Peter, the life of the local church was not meant to be carried out by just a select group of professional pastors, professional individuals. Instead, the ministry of the church was dependent upon the hospitality of the whole body. Everyone participated in it. And if the lovely work of Jesus makes God's holiness a hospitable place for the Christian, how much more should God's people gathered together make the church a hospitable place for those who are bruised and broken? in our own quest for Jesus. 
Here's what I love about Peter's vision of gospel hospitality is that even though he assumes a primary application for those who have homes, as that's what was happening in his culture, he goes on to broaden it to such a degree where he shows that everyone who is saved by grace is capable of participating in this sort of gospel hospitality. Why? Because each of you has received a gift from God. Now, it's very easy for us to look at other people's gifts, ways that other people serve and make people feel cared for. They exercise hospitality. And we could say, man, if I had that much money, I could really serve the church. If my home was better suited for hosting, I could really have a purpose. If I was a better cook, less socially awkward, the list could go on and on and on and on. And many of those things might be true. But Peter instead shows that each of us has been given different gifts because God's grace is so vast that it takes a whole bunch of people to show it. Look at how Peter puts this in 1 Peter 4, verse 10. As each one has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. And here's this little bit of wordplay here, which is lost on us in English. He says, as each of you has received a gift, charisma, it is according to God's varied grace, Caritos, not Cheetos. Those are grace, but this is Caritos. This is God's grace. As each of you has charisma, it is as a result of God's Caritos. God has given you a grace. He has saved you, and as part of that salvation, you have been given a gift, a gift which is meant to be used to bless those around you. That gift is no personality quirk. It is not a result of your education. It is something God has given you in conversion through the Holy Spirit. The sum of what God has given you was meant to be spent here, according to Peter, in the service of those who are around you of contributing to the hospitality of the gospel in the life of the church. And here's what I love. So many times we see in scripture the command, the imperative to love one another, and then this is how good God is. He provides for you exactly what you need to do that. Love one another. Hey you, here's a gift to help you do that. Here's the power to endure when it seems hard. Here's when you feel like you have nothing to offer where the gospel shows its strength in you and you are able to be hospitable to those who are around you. Look at how Paul puts this in 1 Corinthians 12, verses four through seven. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. God has given gifts to his church. And what's interesting is just like it was for first Peter, it's often the external pressures of life and the internal weight of sin which expose those gifts. Whether it's persecution and a church has to care for itself from the inside, whether it's a building fund or building renovations, where our gifts of swinging sledgehammers and slapping up paint come into play. What the world sees as hard and difficult, God sees as a moment where his gifts, graciously given, get to shine. And so a question you might have is, how do you know what those gifts are? Well, generally, I don't spend a lot of time doing this because the Bible doesn't spend a lot of time helping us discern this. It just lists them and assumes that you're gonna stumble into them, which leads to this really simple way I have of discerning your gifts. 
I say, how has God wired you? What has God given to you? Meaning this, if you're someone who's terrified of public speaking and you faint anytime you get in front of a crowd, I'm guessing God didn't give you the gift of preaching. You don't have to submit yourself to that public speaking for the rest of your life. But what God has, God has wired us and what God has given us, those probably contribute to the sovereign way God has constructed you. If you naturally gravitate towards encouraging people, it could be that God has given you that gift. Maybe you might be underdeveloped in it. Maybe you need to practice it more. That's something that God has given you to use for his good. If you naturally gravitate towards providing for others, it could be that God has given you the gift of generosity. When you see something and you think, how can this be used to help others? You might have a specific gift of hospitality. But also, what has God given you? If God has given you a skill to fix things, use that to serve the church. If God has given you a home or a car, use that to serve the church. If God has given you a massive inheritance, use that to serve the church. College students, if God has given you in this season of summer ample time, use that to serve your brothers and sisters in the church. The goal of all God's gifts that he gives to us is to glorify him and love others. Look again at verses 10 and 11. As each one has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as the one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God might be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Whatever you have, whoever you are, if you have been saved by Jesus because of the hope you have for you in heaven, you get to labor in everything, with everything, for the glory of God. And the beautiful reality of this is is that as we exercise those gifts, we don't make much of ourselves we make much of the God who has given them. We don't need to be bashful about what God has given to us. Why? Because if you just had a dope counseling session or just this wonderful discipleship thing where you hit it out of the park, you did so with words that God provided. You're not, I'm not smart enough to do that. But God's Holy Spirit, God's living word, is certain to do that. When you serve in a way that is wonderful and your gifts are wonderfully on display, what's ultimately on display is the God who gives you the strength to serve in that way. If you are passionate about glorifying God, you must be passionate of loving others in this way. Which means everything we do as the church is done ultimately to glorify God, the Jesus who created the church. And this is the last point today, the culmination of glory. Right, we see this in 1 Peter 4.11. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God might be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. It is to Jesus that all glory and all dominion belongs so the sum of our life is lived for him. To live for his glory to be on the winning side of history and to experience the grace of his love. We talk a lot about living for God's glory here at Sovereign Hope. Our slogan is gospel change for all of life. That means we want to glorify God in everything we're doing. It is a big, vast idea. But if we are not careful and if we leave that idea undefined, it can pose to be a problem. 
it becomes so undefined that it can prove the trope that if everything glorifies God, nothing glorifies God. In other words, if I tell you, if you ask me, do I love my wife, Sarah? And I say, I love my wife in everything I do. And you say, pick one thing. And I can't say that one thing. There's probably an answer that I don't love my wife well. If I can't tell you the way in which I love my wife, I bet she's not experiencing the love that I think she is. And so we could talk about living for the glory of God, but if you can't point to what that looks like in your life, it might be that you're not actively living sober-mindedly and self-controlled in light of God's glory. But here, Peter gives us three wonderful benchmarks. Do you want to know what Peter thinks it takes to live for the glory of God? It takes everything, but he gives three wonderful benchmarks for your heart. First, are you living in light of the eternal reward which is yours in Jesus Christ. The end of all things is at hand. Be sober-minded and self-controlled. Does the hope of heaven captivate your thoughts and comfort your heart? When we sing songs about heaven, does it make your hair stand on end? I love songs about heaven. We should sing more of them. Here's this wonderful thing. God didn't create heaven for himself. He had it. He's good. God is constructing a new heavens and a new earth to be ruled by King Jesus for you, for us. How good is heaven for us? How much should that captivate our hearts and comfort us in our weaknesses? Are we living for the eternal reward in Jesus Christ? Secondly, are you loving those around you by being long-suffering and gentle with sinners? Are you able to love those around you by moving towards them when it is easy and moving towards them when it is not easy? Knowing that you don't need to validate or vindicate yourself before them because Jesus has done all of that for you. Thirdly, are you using your words as God's words, your gifts as God's gifts, and your strengths as God's strengths to make the church a more hospitable place, not only for the gospel to be heard, but to be felt by those who encounter it? Why do we do all of this? So that we ourselves and those around us see the glory and goodness of this King Jesus in every corner of our church. You see, one beautiful day, the trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. And in that day, everyone will see the glory of that King. But for right now, he has chosen for that glory to be displayed in his church. And so we live this out so the world might see his goodness even when times are hard. Our greatest joy comes in living for his glory then. In the new heavens and the new earth, you will never be more satisfied than laboring for God's glory in eternity. But as a gift to us, he has given us a foretaste of that, of living for his glory here in this broken world. And it's hard and it takes the gospel to get through it. But he's given us what we need to do it well for his glory, for our joy, and for salvation of those who are around us. So let's be vigilant in our hope and conscious of the end as we labor for the reward of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your goodness. I thank you that you have drawn near to us in your Son, Lord, I pray that you fix our eyes on you in a way that shapes our actions. The hope consumes us in such a way that it shows up in our hands and in our homes. Lord, I pray that 
in ways that we don't understand, when we feel tension with others, when we feel tension with our world, we are reminded of the love you had for us when you came and died for us. We pray all this in your name. Amen.